Well, we are beginning the book of Philippians. It's often called the epistle of joy because joy, rejoicing, thanksgiving, thanks is mentioned so many times, 18 times in total in this little tiny four-chapter book. It's very quick, very short. And um, it's also one of the prison epistles, along with Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon, the four of them. These were when Paul was in prison. Let me take you back a little bit. Paul is now on his second missionary journey. He leaves the Antioch. There's many Antiochs, but the Antioch that was in Syria, not too far from Damascus, from where he got saved. Remember that, where he got saved? So not too far from there. Uh, sort of near Aleppo in modern day speak. (laughs) And he was there in Antioch and he got his team together. Barnabas and him, they didn't see eye to eye over bringing Barnabas's nephew, John Mark. So they parted ways, but he got another group of guys with him, Silas and Dr. Luke and a young guy that he just led to the Lord. And they were then going to head into what would be Turkey today, Asia Minor. And that was their plan to reach all of those cities of what's Turkey today. And so they go to the big first area, and God says, no, you can't preach there, not yet. He goes to the next area, No, I mean, we're talking, they're walking a very long ways. Macedonia, no. Galatia, no. Thessalonica, no. He finally gets to the ocean, over to a coastal town on the Aegean Sea. And it's in Troas, and he's praying, and he has a dream, a vision, where there's a man from Europe today. You see, where Troas is, it's just a little below where Constantinople is, or Istanbul today is, which is the entry point when you leave Asia and you go into Europe. It's there across the bridge from that town of Turkey today, uh, Istanbul. But a little bit below that is Troas. And so Paul got on a boat to find out who this guy was over in Greece, So he crosses the ocean, and he comes to Philippi. Surprising enough, there was nobody there whatsoever that were Jews and met together. You know, you have to have at least 10 Jews to meet together. And so there were no Jews there. And so they heard there's some people like maybe he's talking about down at the river. So he goes down to the river and he finds this group of Jewish women, no men whatsoever. And he shares the Lord with them and these ladies get saved. One in particular was Lydia, which this is hilarious. She is actually from Asia Minor, (laughs) where Paul said he couldn't preach. But she evidently was a a very wealthy woman, seller of purples, and she had a summer house over there in Greece. Sounds pretty good to me. And, uh, and, uh, And she joyfully received the Lord, and then she 
put pressure on Paul and the gang to stay at her large house. And that became their base there. Well, while they were preaching the gospel through that area, this lady began to come after them and saying, listen to these men, they're of God. They're bringing to you the word of God. And, and she's screaming and shouting to everybody to listen to Paul and Barnabas, or not Barnabas, Silas and the gang and Timothy. And finally, after a few days of this, Paul just being so annoyed because it looked like she was excited, you know, about the things of the Lord. She was actually demon-possessed. Yeah, sometimes if you can't beat them, join them and look like a crazy person, right? To make the whole group guilty by association. Oh, I know what kind of people those are. They're insane people. That lady's out of her mind. And she's one of the most zealous followers of them. Well, Paul turned and cast the demon out. But the problem was, is one of the wealthiest guys in the area was wealthy because this girl he had under his control and she was a fortune teller. Through the power of demons, she was reading palms and using tarot cards or whatever. And when she got, the demon came out, she no longer could do that. So this guy set in to discover a way to destroy Paul, even kill him if he can. So he had influence, so he went to Philippi. He got everybody all mad and, and at Paul. And, and so they grabbed Paul and Silas. They got two of them. And they beat them with rods. And then they didn't just put them in jail. They put them down in the pit and chained them up after getting horribly beaten. Well, about midnight, Paul and Silas, no grumbling, no complaining, they start praising the Lord, singing hymns and rejoicing. And the place they were at was shaken with an earthquake and all the doors of the prison and the chains fell off. And the jailer, knowing that in Rome, if you people get away, they're going to torture you and then kill you. So he was just getting ready to fall on his, store, on his sword and Paul said, stop, don't do this. None of us have escaped. No prisoners are gone. And he said, well, what must I do to be saved? And he said, just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You and all of your house can be saved. Not just you believe it on the Lord. Everyone in your house can also believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's it. That is the gospel, isn't it? John three sixteen. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's, that's it. Well, it sounds too simple. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Nobody's going to have an excuse on the day of judgment. It was that simple. And um, anyway, so when this miracle happened, the, the people of the town, the mayors and whoever said, okay, let's just have you guys leave and we'll forget this whole thing ever happened. And Paul said, no, no, I want my day in court because me and Silas are Romans. And no Roman is to be beaten without a judicial trial. Well, when they heard that, they realized we could be dead here. So Paul said, I'm not leaving town. I'm here. I'll not make a point of what you did to us. But he went back to the house of Lydia, strengthened the church there, and then they went on their way. Wow, quite a story. 
But what was unique about this church? What was unique is that these guys became Paul's actual friends. We just finished the book of Ephesians, and Paul really has nobody by name that he mentions to greetings. Well, not so to the Philippian church. He names a number of people. It appears that most of the church, if not all of the church, were just women. Interesting. And um, so Paul had true fellowship with these guys. Why he was in prison, what motivated him to write this letter, he tells us later, is because somebody from Philippi had come to visit him in Rome and brought a financial gift to support him in his chains. And so he said, before you go, I got to write a letter to thank you for that financial gift. And so Paul wrote it. And of course, these letters, all the prison epistles were meant to be read, not just to the place they were written to, but all the churches would read what the apostle Paul had said. So Paul is in prison in Rome. You guys might remember that story where he came to Jerusalem and they lied saying that Paul had brought Titus into the actual temple that no Jew was supposed to do, which is a lie. He didn't do that. But they arrested him. He stayed in prison. They imprisoned him. They were going to kill him there. So the Romans sent him down to Caesarea right on the ocean there. There's many Caesareas. But this is the one we go today to Israel. There's a giant amphitheater there right on the ocean. It's a beautiful place. But he was there two years. But he appealed to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, if you wanted Caesar himself to hear your case, you had that right. The thing is, you'll probably die of old age before Caesar ever sees you. So there's a real um, knife edge to, to taking that route. But he knew he wasn't going to get a fair trial anywhere near Jerusalem. So they shipped him to Rome where he was for two years under arrest. At this time, not later, later he was in a dungeon in Rome. But at this point... At this time, they actually allowed him to have his own house. He had to pay the rent. He had to. And then the Romans would come to him, and they would chain him themselves 24 hours a day, seven days a week to Paul. Even when he was resting, he was chained to the Romans. So we just saw in Ephesians where he's breaking down the armor. Uh, and, and, of course, he's saying we all are in, we're all enlisted there's nobody in the civilian life in the Lord. We're all soldiers. So he knew that well. So Paul begins this prison epistle to the Philippians. I was going to say the Filipinos. Um, it's to them also. To, the, to Philippi. There we go. Uh, and um, he says there, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops, which is the word elders or overseers. Today we would say pastors, spiritual leaders, and deacons, those over the physical areas. So the church now does have leaders in it to lead the church. So Paul... Boy, we could spend the whole service talking about that guy. Because the book of Acts, most of it is revolved around him and his ministry. Interesting enough. 
When Jesus, the beginning acts, ascends into heaven, the whole and the Holy Spirit falls on the apostles that were left, minus Judas and the other 100, 120 in the upper room. It starts out in this Jewish story, how they're reaching all the Jews in Jerusalem, but then persecution came, they spread out, but now they're meeting all the Jews in other places outside of Jerusalem. And it, it looks like all the book of Acts is going to be a story how Jesus is reaching Jews throughout the world until chapter 9. And remember that story? The Osama bin Laden of the Jewish realm? The Saul, this Pharisee, who was set out to destroy and kill and imprison and to end Christianity and all Christians. But the Lord stopped him on his way to Damascus. He was going to Syria to find the Christians there in that Jewish community and arrest them. He had Roman power of attorney to do so on, the, on behalf of the Roman government and bring them back to Jerusalem to be tried and probably like Stephen, to stoned to death. But he radically became saved. And uh, from there, Damascus... He went into Arabia, Saudi Arabia. He lived there in Saudi Arabia for three years. And the Lord taught him the Bible there and showed him salvation through the Messiah Jesus and all the prophecies of Christ and all the work of Christ, which is interwoven from the very beginning of Genesis all the way through the Old Testament. And um, after that, he ended up coming back to Antioch, which is again in Syria, not too far from Aleppo. And he was pastoring there along with Barnabas. But at times he went to Jerusalem, but it just so happens all the apostles were gone except for a couple. So he didn't really have the connection with the apostles that he had hoped for. And the next time he has a powwow with Peter, we know this from the book of Galatians, he had to rebuke him for being a hypocrite. So he finally said, I was trying to connect to these apostles, but I just can't do it. So it doesn't matter to me because I'm, I have a different ministry than they do anyway. They're, they're reaching Jews. I'm reaching Gentiles. Paul would first preach to the Jews, but he said, I'm an apostle born out of due time. He was the replacement, I believe, for Judas. But his apostleship was to Gentiles. And, um, and so he starts different missionary journeys. They're fun to look at and travel, especially when you look at a modern-day map next to a Bible map and you look at how he went. It's, uh, it's, it's just, I don't know, I, I love geography and I love maps and I, I love and just spend hours looking and, and looking at the places Paul went and how he would have traveled. And, and then I like to compare that to uh, you know, Alexander the Great and him conquering the world or the Roman Empire and their various, uh, and the Knight Templars and stuff. And, and they all end up conquering the same land. So it's just sort of a repeat of thousands of years of, of history. But then to look at the beginning of the Christian church there, and then today, uh, the cities are there, the buildings are left over, but uh, Christianity is not ruling or reigning in that place to this day. So Paul and then a Timothy, his son in the faith, in Acts 16, before he goes to Philippi, um, he takes Timothy because his dad was a Greek, his mom was a Jew, in the Jewish culture that would make Timothy a Jew. But he knew that Timothy would be going into Jewish 
synagogues, which it doesn't sound like he had done much. So Paul circumcised him so he could go into uh, Jewish houses of worship where Silas and Luke and others couldn't. So um, it seems like he was a young teenage boy and his mother and grandmother, great, deep women of faith. Um, and he took him under his wing in this apprenticeship. And um, Timothy and him became very close and very good friends to those in Philippi. A bondservant of Jesus Christ. I love this. Jesus said, who is the greatest in my kingdom? It's the servant of all. Jesus, at the very end of his life on earth and ministry, washed the apostles' feet and said, blessed are you if you also do this. And Paul is saying, I'm a bondservant. You guys know the story, right? In Exodus 21, when a man would become an alcoholic or beaten his family, he no longer would be able to live free. They would take him and place him under, as a slave in one of the elder, Jewish elders' house. And for six years, he would be a slave. And on the seventh year, he could go free. But often, these guys that were so unprofitable learned to be husbands, learned to be dads, learned to be hardworking. They developed character under the care of this Jewish elder they never had before. And so they wouldn't want to end it. So they could go to the front door of that man's house and put their ear against the doorpost and they would drive a hole through his ear and put a ring in it that would signify to the whole community he is choosing to be a slave for life because it's under this man's authority he's his best version of himself. It's under this man's authority that he's the most fruitful. And he wishes to remain a servant in this man's house. This is what Paul says. I'm a bondservant of Christ. <laughs> I am willingly putting myself under my master's control because I am a better me when I follow Jesus. I'm more fruitful when I'm under his control. And so was Timothy both. To all the saints who are in Christ Jesus. Unfortunately, we throughout the world, when we see the word saint, we think of Catholicism, even if you weren't born Catholic, because they hijacked this word to only pertain to a certain group of people. Years after they've died, the stories come forward to prove that they did miracles and a number of other things. It goes to the Vatican and the Pope stamps it, and they become a saint. They start building statues, and you can pray to them. Well, this is not what Paul's talking about at all. <laughs> He's just using a term that they would have known, saying Christian. You, 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 you know that the word Christian was a put-down. Go back in the book of Acts. When they were trying to say the N-word, so to speak, to these Christians... They called them Christians, which means you're trying to be like Jesus. Look at them. Look at that Peter. He even sounds like Jesus. Look at, look at Matthew. He's walking like Jesus. These guys are all trying to be little Jesuses. And they're like, yeah, actually we are. <laughs> 
You're right. We are trying to be little Jesus. We're trying to walk as he walked and talk as he talked. And, and that's a great compliment. But that's not what it was meant for. So in this first generation, Christians didn't call other people Christians. What did they call them? Saints. That was the term. It means holy ones. And it's meant to be, it's a done deal. Why? Because the moment you believe, you are going to heaven. You are going to be one day in a brand new body. You are going to be holy without blemish, without spot. You are going to be pure as Jesus is pure. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we become right now the righteousness of Christ. Do you realize to be absent from this body would be present with the Lord in a fraction of a second? We, I mean, a fraction, we don't even know how quick. We immediately are with the Lord holy as he is, as righteous as he is. I know that sounds blasphemous. We didn't do it. He did it for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that then he makes us the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So it is right to say we are saved past tense. Now, are we saved past tense? Go look in the mirror. <laughs> You'll know. It's hard to believe that sometimes. But we say it because it would dishonor God if we didn't put it in the past tense. Because he's the one who said it's a done deal. The, as many as receive him, immediately they become children of God, holy in his sight. Not holy in my sight, not holy in your sight, but holy in his sight. So we are holy. We are saints because of God's gift of salvation to us. So if you want to quit calling people Christians here at Calvary Chapel Los Alamitos and call them saints, we'd be like the New Testament church more. Hey, saint, how you doing? And it would probably give you many opportunities to preach to Catholics as well. <laughs> Um, although yesterday when we were witnessing, there's a, uh, this elderly man and, and a young guy, I think maybe his nurse with him, and, and, uh, and he spun the wheel down there to witness, and, and, uh, and it fell on there, you know, do you know how to have eternal life? And, and the old guy said to Matthias there, he said, uh, yeah, believe on Jesus. And then the other guy said, I'll spin too, and he spinned, and, and he goes, basically similar question, and he goes, yep, that's the beginning and end of the story. Put our faith in Christ for salvation. And we're like, yeah, you guys got it, man. Just, it, was just, it was just a beautiful heart of faith in Christ that was just so evident. Our spirit bore witness with their spirit. They were genuine. And, uh, and I said, yeah, where do you guys fellowship? Oh, we go to the Catholic Church over here. Um, I've been there for years. Uh, interesting that typically they say, you know, Go to confessional. How, how do you know? We had that said yesterday. You know, how do you, how do you have your sins forgiven? Oh, you go to the priest. And uh, Matthias said, well, actually, let me tell you what the Bible says. But uh, anyway, um, it's believing in Christ. Even if you're a Catholic, it works. Um, <laughs> if you put your faith in Jesus. And it says those who are in Philippi, and we just talked about that, this city which was known as Little Rome, uh, Philip of Macedonia, uh, many hundreds of years earlier, had conquered it and named it after himself, Philippi. Interesting, the name Philip or Philippi means lover of horses. 
So this, they, they loved horses, but I don't think it had anything to do with horses. It just was after Philip's name. It was this very set Roman colony. They prided themselves out of saying, we are just like Rome. And he says, with the bishops, we talked about that, elders, overseers. Literally, it means to look over, and it's referring to the spiritual aspect of looking over. And then deacons, this is the word dekanos, which is an attendant, a waiter. It could even be somebody who serves food, or it could be a servant of the king. It's a very broad term used, but it's overseeing the practical needs of those in the church. At this particular time, it was overseeing the finances and the care for the poor in the church. Well, in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God the Father and from the Son, Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace is the Greek word of this day, charisus, to say hello. So understand that our Christian words at one time meant something different in that society, and we Christianized those words. And so it was simply this way to say hello, but what it meant was power to you. You know, may, may your day be full of favor. And they were referring to the Greek gods or to the Roman gods or whatever. But he says, yeah, power to you. May, may you have this favor of God upon you today. And, but which God? From our God, our Father, and through his son, Jesus Christ. So yes, Chrysus. But then they would add to it. Now, this may, only the Christians would say this. They would say a Greek, Greek, but then they would say the Hebrew. Even though this is the Greek word here, because the New Testament's written in Greek, no doubt they were referring to the Hebrew shalom. The word shalom it actually means wholeness. That, that if your life is fractured or you're grieving or you're suffering, that you would become a whole person. Boy, this next generation, guys, I, I don't know if you noticed, but they're hurting. These guys are full of anxiety and fear and, and they are tortured people. They are traumatized people. And, and they need the shalom of God in their life. And there's only one way to get that shalom. And it's through our Lord Jesus Christ, healing, wholeness, completeness, grace and peace together. Chuck Smith always called them the Siamese twins because you see this repeated in the Bible, grace, but then peace is always second. You won't find peace and grace. You always find grace and then peace. Grace, again, is the unmerited favor from God. What is it? God's blessing me, and I don't deserve it. Now, for years, I, I was in a church that didn't really teach the Bible, and I really believed I couldn't pray because I was so struggling as a Christian. And I felt so guilty to pray, asking for things because of the way I just behaved. So as a young teenager... I would like not pray, but I'd do so good to be good for two or three days in a row, and then I'd pray, because God owes me one. I had a really good three days. A lot of times people are subconsciously thinking that. Not one of your prayers has ever God answered out of any kind of merit. Grace is unmerited. 
Just like the prodigal son, when you are at the place where you don't merit anything but living in a pig pen, that God often graces us the most. His loving kindness and tender mercies surrounding us and bringing us to repentance. Every prayer, God is joyfully answering it. Do we deserve it? No. Do you deserve it after you have a good week being a good Christian? It doesn't incentivize God anymore. God's not incentivized to bless you more when you're good. Think of you parents, how much you love your kids, or grandparents, how much you love your grandkids. Can they ever do something that doesn't, would stop your love or stop your blessings or stop them from desiring your best for your life? So they come. So when we finally come by faith alone and the grace of God alone and go, God, you are going to keep blessing me because you are faithful even when I'm not, because you are love and you love your children as many as receive you become your children and you just grab us and hold us and will never let us go because we're your child. We're your sheep. You're the shepherd. You've got the responsibility. Oh, there's no condemnation to those in Christ. Perfect love casts out all fear. So Lord, we receive it. Then the peace comes. Automatically now, you've got this sense of, I'm going to be human till the day I die. I'm going to struggle with this sinful body till the day I die. I'm going to struggle with anger and bitterness and lust and greed and selfishness and self-consuming. And should I go on? I don't want to depress anybody. But what happens is that nothing is going to separate us from the love of God. Neither height nor depth. I, I know a lot about the depth, not too much about the height. Neither thing present nor what? You can have a peace about tomorrow and about a year from now. Isn't that great? Because God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let the peace come, but it won't come until you're strong in the grace or soaking in the grace. It's like the, the pickle in the pickle jar. It's going to smell like a pickle because it's been soaking in that pickle juice. Well, when you're soaking in the grace, then you become gracified in there and you'll automatically have his peace. And he says, from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I wanted to talk about this in just a couple of minutes because sometimes people... Miss and understand the nature of our God. The Lord our God is one Lord. How many gods do we have? <laughs> one. That's it. But right from the book of Genesis, we, we see the Father, the Holy Spirit, there in verse 2, the Spirit hovering over the deep. And in and, and John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word what? was God. All things that were made were made by him and through him. So we discover God, the one God, is in three persons. So one substance, if you would, 
But that one substance can do different things, right? And so people try to give the analogies, you know, like water can be ice or water can be water or water can be steam. You know, I say, well, that's, that's interesting. But, but if you look at most of creation, it's that way. In threes, whether it's an egg or a tree. And uh, I'm not going to go into teaching on the Trinity, but, but I want us to understand that it's through the work of Christ on the cross that we are saved. But we must not forget it was the Father's desire to send the Son because he loved us, right? John 3, 16. God, referring to the Father, so loves the world that he what? Gave his only begotten Son. You know that word begotten, we really don't know what it means. But you know what I think it it means? It's saying the Father gave his all. He gave his desire. He gave his, from his heart, there we go, from his heart, he gave his best. And Jesus, it says in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And so we, we have this work of God. But equally, the Father is our Savior, and Jesus is our Savior. And this is what we find the New Testament saying. So you have groups saying, no, there's only Jesus. Jesus is the Father. Jesus is the Spirit. Jesus only. That's a lie. That's a cult. The Bible wants us to worship God in three distinct persons. The Bible wants that. You go through the Bible, and, and there are things that all three of them do together. The Bible tells us that creation happened. All three were out part of it. In the resurrection, it says in, in Acts 1, the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And in Romans 8, it says the Spirit of him who raised him from the dead. In John 2, it says, Jesus says, destroy this body in three days, I will raise it up. All three of them were active in his resurrection. But then there's other things that only that particular person does. The Holy Spirit is the one who helps us pray. Jesus is the one who died on the cross. Not the Father, not the Spirit. They have distinct jobs. But it's through the Father and the Son that we are saved. So I just read John 3.16. Look at John 5.24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and what? Believes in him who sent me, there it is, has everlasting life. And shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If what? You believe in the one who sent the Son. Interesting, not. Huh? In John 1, 12 and 13, but as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Interesting. As many as receive the Son, get the right to become the children of the Father. Those who believe in his name, his nature, his grace. Who, who, is, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of what? God referring to the Father. Interesting. We are born again by the will of the Father, helping us see the Son and the work of the cross. In Matthew 10 40, anyone who receives you receives me. And anyone who receives me, what? Receives the Father who sent me. It's one and the same. Jesus isn't saying, okay, now that you receive me, you also need to receive the Father. No, there's only one God. So I believe in the one God through the Father, 
salvation. Uh, thank you, Father, for the gift of your son. And by you, like Abraham, <laughs> like Abraham who got Isaac and laid him on the wood and got the knife and was getting ready to sacrifice him. So, Father, I know you are the one who placed Jesus upon that cross. And it's your sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice. The Father gave the sacrifice. Do we understand that? The Father gave the sacrifice of his son. Jesus was the sacrifice. So either way, through believing in the sacrifice or believing in the one who gave the sacrifice, it still revolved around Christ and him crucified. Salvation comes. In 1 John 5, 11 to 13, this is the testimony that God, referring to the Father, has given us eternal life. And this life is in his, what? Son. Thank you, Father, for giving us life. Thank you, Jesus, for being that life. Jesus, the Father, gave us the life. Jesus says, I am the life and the light. The Father gave us the light. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the light. Do we get it? He who has the Son, what? Has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of the Father, right? And the Son of God. Well, we're going to go on to verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. You know, Paul's in prison. It's hard. His body is broken. Boy, he tells us about it in 1 Corinthians 11, having been beaten with rods and stoned to death and shipwrecked, and his body was trashed. He doesn't talk about his pain. He doesn't talk about being in custody and, and being stir crazy. He doesn't talk about the bad mills or the bad back or the sleepless nights. And boy, he could have said, man, I hate Philippi. Man, they beat me with rods. And, and that was a horrible experience. He, what does Paul do? He remembers the work of God in that place. You know, guys, I, I, just, I just want to tell you what I have observed, as David says, I was young and now I'm old. And you guys who are older than I know this better than I do. If you keep an open heart free of being critical, you will have greater joy in life. You'll have greater joy with people. You'll have a greater joy in your neighborhood. You'll have a church. But the moment you start nitpicking, the moment you start being a little bit critical, it's a big giant snowball, <sighs> right? I tell people in premarital counseling, you're the other person's servant. And the moment you sit back and say, serve me, you're in trouble. You're the other person's servant. The moment you start saying, me first, I want my want, I want my desires, rather than the other person's. You're in trouble. Even though your marriage is perfect to that point, 
I predict it's going to get very hard the moment after that. Right? We've got to always remain that servant. You're a servant too? I'll be a lower servant than you. No, you won't. Yes, I will. We're going to be in a fight here. Who's going to be the greatest servant? That's the point. That's the point of it. We're all a work in progress, aren't we? Everybody's human. And your stinking human stuff is annoying me. But we got to get past that. And Paul thinks about this church. And what do we learn about Paul's prayer life here? He's praying with joy. There's a lot of joy in his life. I love that. The word here, many of you ex-Catholics will know it. It's the word Eucharisto. Eucharist. You know, the Catholics call it communion. Eucharist. We call it communion, which is the word fellowship. So the Protestants focus, <clears throat> when we come to the Lord's table, we're fellowshipping with the Lord. But the Catholics in their tradition have focused on the thanksgiving of the communion. Both are essential, aren't they? A matter of fact, we see the joy of Jesus in communion. And that first, very, very first one that he gave as a pattern in Luke 22, 15, 19, Jesus says, oh, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. He's full of joy. He's full of thanksgiving. He's full of excitement. And then he says twice in verse 17, he took the cup and he gave thanks. And then he took the bread and he what? Gave thanks. It was a time of thanksgiving. So when we come to communion, we, the Bible says, do this in remembrance of me. It's not coming and going, sorry, Jesus, you had to suffer so much. I'm sorry, Jesus, that, you know, I'm such a horrible sinner and forgive me. I don't even deserve to take communion. Please don't kill me for taking it. I'm so, you know. No, it's a fellowship with the Lord and we're coming in through a throne of grace where we receive grace and mercy in the time of need. It's a kind time remembering of the victory of the sacrifice of Christ. That's what the communion is. By his stripes we are healed. Thank you, Father. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Thank you, Father. It is finished through the work of Christ. Well, He's rejoicing, and he says, on every remembrance of you. Wow. This telling us Paul really is looking at the positive side of things. You know, you can do that. I, I know young people that don't go to church today because of the ride home from church. As soon as the parents get into the car, can you believe that Susie wore that? No, I can't. Very appropriate for church. What did you, know? that sermon, too long again. I wish that pastor would learn to talk shorter. Music, oh, I was too loud. I hate that one song. I wish I'd quit singing it. They poisoned their own well. They had no idea that the kids were being taught, our church is stupid. The people there are irritating the music there is bad. The sermons are not up to par. That's what they've heard their whole life. 
Be careful not to poison your own well. I'm sure Paul had some memories of Philippi that weren't great, but he says, I have joy in every remembrance of you. I give thanks to God for every remembrance of you. And he says in conclude here, he says, always in every prayer of mine, make a request for you with what? Joy. All of you, I rejoice in. Let me ask you this. Does God rejoice in every one of his children? Even the ones that are struggling? Even the ones that aren't living up to the end of their bargain to be walking in a manner worthy of God? Yeah, of course he does. We being evil know how much we love our kids and won't ever stop loving them. Times a gazillion, God, our Father, loves us, his children. And he looks at us and he thinks about us with joy. Uh, Satan, one of his number one things he wants to do, maybe two or three, he wants you to think God is perturbed at you. God is disappointed in you. God is upset that you're still lacking. Because he wants to harden your heart against God. He wants you to get in your head that, that you're, you're, you're this child being beaten down by your disappointed parents telling you, try harder, do better, more, 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 more. And in reality, he's, God is not saying that. He's just glad to be with you. He is so joyful every time you come into his presence. So every prayer of mine, every request. The word prayer here is um, desis, which is supplication, request of need or want. When I come to God with my needs and my wants and my uh, seeking and knocking and asking and grabbing onto God and not letting him go until he bless me, when I'm in that place of request, I then pray, request for you. It's the same word. He actually uses it twice. Every prayer, that kind of a supplication, intense praying, making requests for you. I intense praying for you. Don't, don't you do that? When you realize, man, I am struggling with sin right now. I'm so angry at that person and I don't want it to turn to... You know what? I know that's also true of every one of you. Lord, help all of us as our church family not be bogged down by anger not be perturbed with those in our family and those in our church family. Lord, please give me grace in my heart and give grace to the church of Los Alamitos at the same time. And then different people would come to mind. He actually is going to pray this prayer in verse 9 through 11. I'll give you a little preview. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and the praise of God. Boy, Paul, we got two great prayers out of Ephesians, and now we get a third one, and they're getting better. Teach us, Lord, how to pray. Well, we'll look at that in detail and answer that question. So he's making all of these intense prayers to God for specific requests and needs with joy because God hears all our prayers, doesn't he? Even the meditations of our heart. This word joy, rejoicing, gladness, thanks, thanksgiving, 18 times in this book. 
Paul uses the word joy here, saying, making requests with you all with joy. I have joy in my heart as I pray for you. In your progress and the joy of your faith, your faith is growing and, and the serving is more. He says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And then in Philippians 4, 1, therefore, my beloved, long for brethren, my joy, my crown. He calls them my joy. Isn't that great? We are the bride of Christ. Is your bride, is your spouse your joy? I sure hope so. We're at the bride of Christ. We're Christ's joy. And joy happens to be an acronym of this book. Wearsby, in his commentary, he says joy. Jesus, then others, and then last of all, you. <laughs> How do you have joy in our lives as Christian? By putting Jesus first, others next or second, I guess, and then putting ourselves where? Last. Jesus, then others, then you. Putting yourself last. This is the lessons Paul's going to teach. And our final verse here this morning. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. You see, they connected with Paul in koinonia, communion. Not just sitting in the pew smelling. You guys heard about the, the skunk that went to church. He had to sit in his own pew. Anyway. I figured you guys had heard that one, but evidently not you. Anyway, um, they connected with Paul in doing the ministry. And now they were giving financially. Paul didn't ask it. He didn't say he needed it. Matter of fact, he very clearly says, God's providing all my needs, but thank you. You guys have always been this way. And he points out that it was the poor people that gave him the finances, not the rich people. It's always amazing. I have built numbers of buildings as a pastor in the almost 40 years I've pastored. And I, I, am, I can tell you for a fact, the church physically or spiritually is built on the widow's might. The poorest of people sacrificing and giving in, in ways that humble you and blow your mind. And, and this is the time of year, I would just say, God, did I, was I faithful with my talents this year? Did I tie the true 10%? See, I, I think we can, I think, am I praying enough? It's sort of arbitrary. What, what is enough praying? Did I read the Bible enough? Well, I, I don't know. It's sort of arbitrary. These are Christian duties God gives us, right? To pray without ceasing, to meditate in the word, to share our faith, to love our enemies. These are things we are to do as unto God. They're hard because our bodies have to die. But it's interesting, the duty of tithing, 10%, and then above that of an offering, it's actually mathematical. It's not your opinion. Did you give enough? Oh, I feel like I did. No, no, it's, it's, it's math. It's not anything about filling. I, I agree, it's sort of in prayer. It's sort of like, well, I feel like I'm praying enough. Okay, well, how can I challenge that? But when it comes to the giving aspect, you can see how much money you're at least telling the state of California, you got, <laughs> and the federal government, and how much of that was given to the church. The tithe is for the church. The offering is for giving outside the church. So this is the time of year before we get to 
the end of January here to go back and to say, Lord, if I've been faithful in this area. Well, that's just sort of a side point. In chapter four, he goes into detail on this. And again, I want to skip ahead and read this to you of his partnership, that word fellowship, koinea, fellowship, joint participation, partnership. He says in Philippians 4, verse 10 to 19, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. They didn't know where he was. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. We often quote this verse, but this is the context in which this verse 13 is found. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, we often think of, you know, great heroic deeds. But Paul says, I can be hungry and still praise the Lord. I can suffer and be persecuted. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what the context of that phrase is about. Well, in verse 14, nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. Paul made it a point when he went into a town to preach the gospel for the first time, he would receive no offerings because he'd He didn't know if he was going to be there a day or three weeks or three years. He had no idea. And when he had to go, when the Lord said, go to the next town, he had to go. And they're like, oh, I guess we should have paid Paul more money. He would have stayed longer. He he didn't want that confusion. So the church, after he left, he would receive offerings from that church. But he would receive no offerings from the church at the time he's there in that city. Because he wasn't a pastor he was an apostle. Later in 1 Corinthians, he corrects it and says, hey, don't, don't uh, muzzle the ox while it treshes out the grain. Pay your pastors to, to do the work of the ministry for you. But Paul had that. And so he said, man, I, I continue to have these finances, which probably means that Paul didn't have to make tents. He could be a full-time in the ministry rather than part-time in the ministry, having to spend most of his time making tents to make money. For even in Thessalonica, you send aid once and again to my necessities. Interesting, this very wealthy city, these poor people are supporting Paul to reach the rich people. Not that I seek the gift. I love this. Pay attention, verse 17. Not that I seek the gift. I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things you sent, uh, you sent from me a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Amen. They were doing the ministry, not just talking about it. Lord, we thank you for your word today, and we thank you for washing us in the water of your word. We thank you for expounding your word into our hearts. Oh, Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you, Jesus, for so willingly being a sacrifice. And Lord, we're constantly humbled, constantly blessed as we have faith, from faith to faith, 
faith in your grace that saves us to grace, having faith in your grace that has got us through this next, this last week with stumbling and felling and struggles in this human body. Thank you, God, that where sin abounds, your grace abounds more. Thank you, Lord. You who began this good work will complete it. If you're here today and you haven't made Jesus the Lord of your life, just right there, just say, Jesus, I believe you. I believe you as the gospel that you were punished for my sins on the cross, that you died and were buried and you rose again from the dead, conquering my sin, conquering death. Able now, having satisfied the Father who is the judge, having satisfied that my condemnation came upon you, my judgment came upon you, and now as a gift, the Father can receive me into his bosom. Jesus, you making the way through your sacrifice, we can become your bride. And we thank you, Lord, for trusting in you for salvation. And anybody, even in everyone in your household can also believe in Jesus and be saved. And bless your saints this week. Anoint them. Open up the windows of heaven and pour a blessing upon them more than they contain. In Jesus' precious name, amen, amen.